Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, December 1st, 2011. Mm-hmm. Normal program today. Yeah, I want to talk about that one, that one, maybe that one. Eh. Oh, man. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result of it, we got to do the work of a Berean. we got to compare what people are saying to what we have revealed for us in God's Word. That's why the Bereans were held up for, well, praise, if you would, in the um, in the ancient church, in the book of Acts, when it says that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. Because when they heard the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel, they actually compared what he was saying to the Word of God that they had. And what did they have? They only had the Old Testament back then. Uh, they only had, well, a Greek translation, if you would, of the uh, of the Old Testament scriptures. It was called the Septuagint. And what they do? The Apostle Paul came into their synagogue and they said, okay, Paul, thank you very much for your, uh, your gospel presentation here. We're very interested in your claims that Jesus Christ is the Messiah promised for us in the Old Testament and that you're an eyewitness to his resurrection, that you've talked with him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take your – we've taken notes, and what we're going to do is we're going to do some comparative work. We'll come back. We'll talk later. And what do they do? They opened up the scriptures and go, okay, is this guy telling us the truth or not? Well, we can trust God's word. So notice they didn't trust their liver shivers. They didn't trust uh, you know, some burning in their bosom or anything of the sort. Uh, no, they opened up the Old Testament and said, yep, this, what this guy's preaching, the Apostle Paul, what he's preaching, that's exactly, exactly what the Old Testament uh, said would happen. And that gospel he's preaching, that's the same gospel we see in the Old Testament. So they believed him. And they the reason why they believed him is not because they thought, oh, well, you know, Paul... He's got a decent message. I, I like his joke delivery. You know, that wasn't it at all. It was because they tested to see if he was what he was saying was true, and they believed that what they had in the Old Testament text was true. 
And so they compared the two, and wouldn't you know it, ta-da, the Apostle Paul's gospel turned out to be in accord with what God had revealed the good news is in the Old Testament. You're thinking, is the good news really in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's it's a misunderstanding of Scripture. There's a lot of people for, you know, it, for bad reasons is just probably the way of putting it. For bad reasons, oftentimes they mischaracterize the Scripture by thinking that, Oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's the God of wrath. The God of the New Testament, he's the God of love. And 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 so in the in the Old Testament, we've got the law. In the New Testament, we've got the gospel. You know, no, no, no. That is a extremely simplistic, overly simplistic, and really inaccurate way of looking at scriptures. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah himself is oftentimes referred to as the fifth gospel writer. Why? Well, the reason why is because the gospel that he preaches in Isaiah chapter 53, yeah, that's as clear of a gospel presentation as any in the New Testament, and sometimes clearer. Read Isaiah 53, and, and here's the deal. I've actually had conversations with people who've come out of Judaism, and they point out the fact that Jews to this day are not so hip on reading Isaiah 53, and they, they, they've come up with a way of liturgically skipping that particular passage. Why? Well, it's kind of interesting. I've been rereading Martin Chemnitz's The Examination of the Council of Trent, and Chemnitz points out the fact that, uh, that for the first few centuries after, for the first few centuries after the death and resurrection of Christ and the beginning of the church, that there was still... Um, quite a few uh, people who were Jews who converted to Christianity because of the biblical texts. And so uh, this this guy went on to point out the fact that the uh, the Jews began using the Kabbalah, which is a mystical book, and engaging in mysticism and obfuscation and basically trying to bring in these other traditions to really water down the Old Testament texts so that people wouldn't uh, see the clear teachings of the Old Testament regarding the promises of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and uh, the, what he did for our sins and things like that. And as a result of it, by basically retooling Judaism um, and taking it farther and farther away from the book, and doing some monkey business with the book by also bringing in, you know, the traditions, the uh, the Mishnah and other things like that, they were able to, um, well, uh, effectively staunch the bleeding, if you would. And so kind of an interesting historical note there. Anyway, uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just so you know, I, I'm feeling a little bit better. I, I did smash my head yesterday and uh, still have had a pretty good... Headache, you know. I jokingly said to my wife today, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in a mayonnaise," and she, she didn't think that was funny. She thought that I was slurring words and things. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm okay. It's just, I'm, you know, I, right now I'm on a, on a pretty heavy dose of uh, ibuprofen to keep the uh, headache back. I'm beginning to wonder if maybe I gave myself a minor concussion. No fun, no fun, it, you know. It, but I'm making progress. I'm getting better. Anyway, so uh, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we have got uh, an update from Melissa Fisher. Now it's been a while since we've done a Holy Ghost answering machine update. It, yeah, I know it's been a while. But uh, see, the reason why we really haven't been doing much on the Holy Ghost answering machine updates is because Melissa Fisher has not been a prolific creator of um, 
of videos lately. Um, she's kind of you know she, where she before she was doing these things like every week or so. She's kind of really pulled back, um, and you know she's only this. This is the, only the second video that she's done in more than two months. So uh, the name of it, by the way, is "Consecrate Yourselves," and, and I have no idea what it means. But uh, you know, as a service to you, the listener, fighting for the faith, and well, to help Melissa Fisher out. You know, we do audience uh, multiplication here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit she really she believes in is so well. Um, uh, lame, um, has such poor abilities to contact people that, well, you know, Melissa Fisher has to step in and help the Holy Spirit. So we're going to pass that message along today. Um, let's see here. I might quickly talk about that church in Kentucky that has barred interracial couples from membership. Yeah, I don't know if I want to read the whole story. Um, I've got a Tulian Tavigian uh, op-ed piece entitled, Are You Righteous? I want to get to that. Okay, and oh man, this one bites. Okay, so <clears throat> let me see if I can. <clears throat> From time to time, you've heard me complain about the fact that um, there are certain groups, organizations, places where they're saying things about Christianity that I find myself agreeing with, and it. Um, how's the uh, the phrase go from the Western folks? It chaps my hide. Uh, to that the, that I'm finding myself in agreement with people f- who, for the most part, are uh, from the far left end of the st- spectrum. That being the case, I'm not. I you know, I've got to defend myself here. I am not the only person who thought there was something worthy in this particular op-ed piece. Um, you know, uh, Paul McCain, uh, the head of Concordia Publishing House, he also thought there was something worth passing along in this op-ed piece, and it just. Like I said, it chaps my hide that um, that this op-ed piece is found in the Huffington Post. Okay, so you know, with that, I will hold my nose and read the. Re- and I don't agree with everything in this thing, but there, this guy has got uh, a good point. The name of the op-ed piece, by the way, is "How to Shrink Your Church." We'll take a look at that. Um, and then I've got a Biologos update. It's been yeah, well, it's been a couple weeks since we've done a Biologos update, and Biologos, you know, they've begun. Uh, well, more than begun. They 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 are they are prolifically publishing videos to help uh, propagandize people and and basically try to convince evangelical Christians that no, oh, they can embrace evolution and Christianity all at the same time. And in this particular video, I was cracking up. And the, why was I cracking up? The reason I was cracking up is because the theologian that they feature in this video is a guy who does not believe in the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. It's a guy who holds to what's called open theism. If you're not sure what open theism is, just think of it this way. Um, Every year when the Super Bowl comes around, God is surprised, just as surprised as you are at who, you know, and discovering who won the game. God does not know ahead of time who won the game at all. So, in this particular, um, yeah, man, and I have met Greg. Anyway, in this particular Biologos video, they feature an open theist. You just can't make this stuff up. But uh, since we're doing a Biologos update, I thought I would take this opportunity to uh, play for you another lecture from the uh, late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, refuting evolutionary theory. Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith was the scientist who helped teach me how to uh, refute, well, evolution scientifically and, and take a look at it and really kind of think of it this way. Uh, have you all ever seen that old 70s movie Force 10 from Navarone? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am so dating myself. Anyway, the, <laughs> okay. All right. So there's a movie out there. If you, have, yeah, you may be able to even watch it on Netflix. Who knows? You know, but uh, the, the, it's the story of these guys who have uh, these. It's a World War II espionage behind the enemy lines kind of story. The, the job is for these people to blow up a dam in Yugoslavia. And, um, and so what happens is is that you know this 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 elite team that they've uh, uh, assembled for this very important secret mission to blow up a dam behind enemy lines and um you know cuz the Nazis are there in Yugoslavia a- anyway they 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 finally succeed some of them succeed in getting into the dam placing the explosives getting out of the dam alive and then they're at a place with a vantage point where you know when the um, when the uh, explosives are supposed to go off and you, 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 you're expecting this huge explosion and all this kind of stuff. And all you hear is, and that's it. And one of the guys is really angry. It's like, what? That's it. That's it. You know, we're, we're supposed to destroy this dam. And, and the, uh, and uh, the, the guy who plays the explosive says, yeah, just give, give it time. Be patient. Just don't worry. I know what I'm doing. And uh, sure enough, there you know, just within a matter of minutes, there was a crack, and the crack got larger, and the crack continued to grow. And next, next thing you know, there's water gushing through the crack, and then the whole dam begins to crumble and break. And ta-da, they succeeded in their mission. I know that's a spoiler for some of you who haven't seen the movie, but uh, you know, anyway, the the all of that is said to say this, okay, is that Doctor A. E. Wilder Smith? He's one of these guys that you know, when you listen to him, you think. That's all you got? But then you realize, wait a second, he just placed his mental uh, explosives on a complete supporting beam, if you would, uh, for uh, evolutionary theory. And he just took that beam out. And as a result of it, the, the, the more you think about what it is that he says as to why evolution is wrong and can't be supported and why it's not scientific... All of a sudden, the whole thing just comes crashing down. He knows where all the load-bearing beams are in evolutionary theory, and his lectures are like putting plastic explosives on all the load-bearing beams in in evolutionary theory. So we're going to be listening to a lecture from him uh, entitled, Is Biogenesis Scientific? Is Biogenesis Scientific? We're going to be doing that in hour number two today. So make yourself comfortable. Lots of ground to cover today. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun program. So uh, without any further ado, uh, let's uh, dive into the program proper, uh, which requires me to do this. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we got an update from the Patricia King gang. Holy Ghost answering machine update. Now, for those of you who have not been listening to this program for very long and you don't know what I'm referring to when I say Holy Ghost Answering Machine Update, let me explain. There's a gal who's part of the XP Media or Extreme Prophetic um, Ministry Outreach, and you know they, they publish videos there at xpmedia.com, and this gal's name is Melissa Fisher. And the, what I refer to her as the Holy Ghost Answering Machine because... Apparently, the Holy Ghost that she believes in is not capable of finding you, is not capable of finding me, doesn't know how to use the Internet, doesn't know how to use a phone book. And uh, But the good news is this Holy Spirit, well, he's found Melissa Fisher. And so what he apparently does from time to time is 
give her messages that she then makes videos to pass along to the world so that the right person will get the message from God the Holy Spirit. So she really is acting as the answering machine for God the Holy Spirit and her Holy Spirit. Poor guy. I'm just, it's just absolutely the lamest Holy Spirit in the whole world. I mean, just is not capable of figuring out where you are, but has somehow miraculously found Melissa Fisher. So from time to time, she makes these videos, and we pass them along. And we do this for this reason. There are 7 billion people on planet Earth. 7 billion. And uh, as a result of it, you know, we want to make sure that the maximum amount of people out there can get this message. I mean, because if it's a message from God, the Holy Spirit, and he's relying on Melissa Fisher to, you know, get the message out, um, well... <laughs> She doesn't have that big of an audience. Yeah, yeah. this was posted yesterday, and as of the time that I'm playing this right now, 84 watches. Only 84, only 84 people have actually watched this. So this is audience enhancement. You know, we're, we're adding our tens of thousands to, uh, to this, uh, well, the audience listening to this video. So anyway, here's Melissa Fisher. The name of the video is entitled Consecrate Yourself. And earlier today I listened to this, and I, I couldn't figure out anything about what it is that God the Holy Spirit wanted me to do, but see if you can make heads or tails of this. Uh, here we go. Hey everyone, I have a very strong word for you and it is consecrate yourself. Really, consecrate yourself. Okay, um, so that's a strong word that you got from God the Holy Spirit. I need to consecrate myself. Um, okay, nothing's coming to mind. How do you do that? Um, is there a list of things I need to do? What's it involved? Do I need to cut my hair or take a bath? I mean, how do I do that? The Lord is showing me people that you've been hearing all of these words from different prophets that have been saying just what I'm saying right now. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody say that. And you thought, well, you know, maybe I really don't need to do it. Or maybe you started and you've kind of ran out of gas and yeah, you yeah. stopped really pressing into the Lord in that way. Or okay. Yeah. So I ran. So I started, but I ran out of gas. Um, no, no, that's not my problem. Um, I'm still caught up in the whole consecrate thing. Um, how am I supposed to do that? Um, it's uh, I you know I've been attending Christian churches pretty much all my life and um, never have I been part of a consecrate yourself service. And you said if you've I've started but run out of gas, does it involve gasoline? I mean, um, how do you consecrate yourself? Or maybe you've started a fast and maybe you stumbled or slipped up on it. But the Lord is saying it is very, very important in this season that we consecrate and commit ourselves to him. So God, the Holy Spirit, contacted you and said it's really, really, really important that we consecrate ourselves in this season. And it might have something to do with gasoline it might have something to do with pressing into the Holy Spirit, and it might have something to do with fasting. But again, um, you know, I'm just reaching back into the back of my mind, looking, you know, rummaging through the memory banks, if you would. Um, I'll, although I'm pretty sure that I did have to delete my third grade memories in order to make room for that uh, that last course I had in my MBA. Uh, okay, so I'm rummaging back in there, and yeah, nothing. Not, I'm, I'm pulling up nothing. I just Googled my brain, and nothing is coming up on Consecrate Myself. 
like at all. Um, complete blank. Buckus. I mean, it's hmm. He wants to show us things. He has so much that he wants to get you ready. Rosh Hashanah is almost upon us. And- <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> um, hang on a second here. Posted one day ago. Um, uh, Melissa. Yeah, I don't know how to break this to you, but um, you are familiar with Rosh Hashanah, right? Number one, that's the Jewish New Year. Um, Rosh Hashanah usually falls in, like, you know, the fall. In fact, Rosh Hashanah isn't isn't almost upon us. Rosh Hashanah is, like, in the rearview mirror. I mean, it's December 1st. You posted this on November 30th. You are aware that Rosh Hashanah this year ended on September 30th. Yeah, you, you're, like, two months too late. Are you sure you got this information from God the Holy Spirit? And there is much work to be done in you because God has so much planned for you. But what he's trying to do is to go deep and get everything out of you that you have in common with the enemy. Because if Yeah, uh-huh, right. So he he wants to go deep and get that out. Okay. Not when you travel into this next season, there is going to be lots of obstacles that did not need to be there. Yeah. And so, hear my words. Okay, yeah, I'm hearing your words. Yeah, I'm convinced these are not the Holy Spirit's words. Consecrate yourself. Right. Again, I have no idea what you're talking about. Really? Go back into it. Yeah, I, I, you, how can I go back into it when I've never been into it? Um, I don't recognize Rosh Hashanah. I've never consecrated myself. When you asked me to do it, I wouldn't know where to begin. Uh, is there blood sacrifices involved? What do you do for this? Recommit. Just repent. It doesn't matter if you failed or, or you not even failed but stumbled on your fast or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. The Lord is saying, really, go in, get before him, let him show you all of the things he wants to show you because he has much for you in this next season. Mm-hmm. He does not want you to miss your day of visitation, okay? Yeah, if he doesn't even know when Rosh Hashanah is, how do I? How can I be confident that he knows when my day of visitation is? I mean, seriously, if God the Holy Spirit hasn't figured out that Rosh Hashanah occurred, well, back at the end of September of this year, um, do you, can I trust that he knows when my day of visitation is supposed to be? Um, bless you. Love you. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> who, um, right again. Um, that was, uh, Melissa Fisher from the XP media gang and, um, her video entitled consecrate yourself. And, and Melissa Fisher is of course the Holy ghost answering machine. Hmm, beginning to think that maybe God the Holy Spirit is not talking to her. Uh, well, if if he is, then what a lame, lame Holy Spirit he is. Anyway, we're um, up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Good night. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You, you know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name. I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and uh, one more thing. You might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey everyone, this word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So, Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Warning, if the Holy Spirit you believe in is so lame he can't figure out where you live and actually give you a message directly, (laughs) yeah, it's probably the wrong Holy Spirit. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And if you don't already support us, uh, as we approach the end of the year and the holiday season, as you consider your holiday giving and end of the year giving, please consider uh, supporting Fighting for the Faith. We truly do need your help to keep doing what we're doing. And if you don't already support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two Friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And that's on a monthly basis. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you do that by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. Okay, let me see. Which story do I want to do here? Um, yeah, I got to make an executive decision, and I think I'm gonna go with well that one. Okay, yeah. Here, here we go. All right, from the uh, Christian Post, the headline here reads: "Man, I hate this p- headline." Small Kentucky church bars interracial couples from membership. I mean, seriously, this looks, I mean, I'm checking the date on this. Um, Yeah, Wednesday, November 11th, 20, uh, sorry, November 30th, 2011. It doesn't say 1959 here. Yeah, okay, so here's the deal. Uh, I'll just give you a quick synopsis of this. There, This has made the, the rounds all over the Internet and the world. I actually saw a story, this story picked up by The Guardian in the United Kingdom. Now, I... Didn't fly to the United Kingdom. I just happened to read their internet website. But anyway, um, yeah, I read a lot of the international papers too. So, um, okay, so here's the deal. Um, let me just run this down for you. Uh, Golnary Free Will Baptist Church, located in Pike County, Kentucky. It's Eastern Kentucky. They got 40 people who attend their small little Free Will Baptist Church. One of the members there at the beginning of November submitted a uh, you know a, a thing to be voted on by the members that basically said that they're not going to allow into membership people who are uh, well interracially married. And the um, the church members voted it in like nine to six. Um, so what are we to make of a story like this? Plain and simple. Listen, folks, if, um, this, there, there's gonna, where there's smoke, there's fire. Okay. And in, in this particular case, where there's fire, there's fire. Okay. Plain and simple. Now, I scoured the internet looking for a sermon that I could review from Gulnary Free Will Baptist Church because I thought that would be a great way of demonstrating it. But with only 40 people, they don't have much of an internet budget. So I wasn't able to find a, um, <clears throat> 
sermon to review. Lucky you. Anyway, yeah, lucky me too. I, I keep in mind. Yesterday, I hurt my head, and I am sure that listening to a sermon from Gulnary Free Will Baptist Church, a church that has outlawed members who are engaged in interracial marriage, I'm sure my head would probably explode. I, my blood pressure would go through the roof. My head would probably just pop right open, and it would not make for good radio. But uh, here's the deal: when you hear of something like this, you can know this, okay? Where there was smoke, there's fire, and where there's fire, there's fire. This is a church that has got some serious theological problems, and those problems are going to fall into the category of not understanding the gospel, like period, and like totally over preaching the law as if the law somehow justifies and saves you. And here's the deal. There is no biblical commandment against interracial marriage. And the only way you can come up with anything that even remotely accidentally looks like something like that is from a misunderstanding from one biblical text from the book of Genesis in the King James Version. So, you know, how are you to look at this kind of group? Well, it doesn't represent anything within biblical Christianity. They voted this way despite what Christianity teaches. And the only way they can come up with a vote like that is probably because they don't rightly handle God's word to begin with. So in a situation like this, you call them to repentance, tell them to get a good translation of the Bible, get off the KJV and start preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins and stop preaching as if it's somehow your righteousness that justifies you before God. And if somehow, somehow making yourself racially pure is is one of the commandments that the Bible teaches none of this nonsense. This is just flat out bigotry. So and and there's only forty people in this church. They don't represent anything within the mainstream. So this is a throwback. So anyway, that's how. Yeah, that's just my take on that particular thing. But uh, <laughs> talking about proper distinction of law and gospel, though, got a good op-ed piece here from uh, Tulian Tavigian. Um, he's been doing some good stuff lately, by the way. Um, he, he this is uh, from his uh, op-ed piece published this morning at the uh, Christian Post and the name of it is are you righteous are you righteous now that's a fine question um quoting second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 the op-ed piece begins with these words for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god tulian then writes Ethical behavioralism is a term psychologists use which defines righteousness exclusively in terms of what a person does or does not do. That's called ethical behavioralism. So in this sense, a righteous person is one who does the right things and avoids the wrong things. An unrighteous person is one who does the wrong things and avoids the right things. Defined this way... Righteousness is a quality that can be judged by an observation of someone's behavior. Virtue and uprightness is purely a matter of outer conduct without any hint of what goes on inside of you. William Holderin uh, illustrates well how this definition of righteousness is the definition held by the world. Quote, the law enforcement institutions of society are concerned with right behavior. They do not care why people obey the law so long as they obey it. The person who breaks no laws is righteous in their sight, regardless of the motivation that produces law-abiding behavior. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus breaks radically from this definition of righteousness. Jesus cuts through the outer behavior of a person and looks at what's in the heart. Jesus insists that righteousness is not simply a matter of what we do or don't do, but rather a question of why we do or don't do it. A few years ago, when my boys were younger, they would gather all the neighborhood kids in our yard to play football. And every once in a while, a pass would be overthrown, landing in my neighbor's grass. My neighbor, an angry, grumpy old curmudgeon, would always come outside and scream at my boys and their friends, threatening to confiscate the ball if it happened again. My boys, being young at the time, would always come inside with tears in their eyes, lips quivering because... They were scared of our neighbor. Well, being the scrapper that I am, uh, there were countless times that I wanted to march over to my neighbor and give him a piece of my mind. I wanted to make it clear that if he ever yelled at my boys again, well, you, you get the idea. Well, I never did it, though. I would stare him down from time to time, but I never went next door to let him have it. Some would assume that my refusal to let loose on my neighbor was an act of righteousness. I was exercising love, patience, self-control. But was it? Only God and I, and I, and now you know the real reason I never went off on my mean neighbor. The potential risks to me were too high. I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want him calling the police. I didn't want him filing a complaint against me to our neighborhood association. I didn't want him gossiping about me so that people in the neighborhood would think less of me. After all, everyone knows I'm a pastor and I didn't want to tarnish my image and on and on and on. In other words, the very thing that may have on the surface seemed righteous was motivated by something terribly unrighteous. It was motivated by selfishness. So the apparent righteousness of my deed was destroyed by the motivation that inspired it. It wasn't as righteous as it seemed, to say the least. So Holdren uh, goes on spelling this out very clearly. Quote, Before an act of murder or adultery is committed, there has first been the motivations of the person involved. In his or her heart, there has been a murderous anger or an adulterous lust. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is that many people have may have the same motivations in their hearts without ever carrying out the external actions. There may be many reasons for not acting out or upon our motivations, but obviously one of the most common reasons is a fear of the consequences. The laws of all societies make it perilous to commit murder, and laws or social pressures of all societies make it costly to commit adultery. Therefore, when a person refrains from such actions, it may not be because their heart is pure, but simply a matter of self-protection. Jesus is saying that where the motivation for not acting on one's desires is selfish, that person is as unrighteous in God's eyes as the person who actually commits the crime. The reason this is so important is because many Christians think God cares only about uh, that we obey. In, in fact, many believe that it is even more honorable and therefore more righteous when we obey God against all desire to obey him. 
Where did we get that idea that if we do what God tells us to do, even though our hearts are far from him, that it's something to be proud of, something admirable, something praiseworthy, something righteous? Don't get me wrong. We should obey even when we don't feel like it. I expect my children, for instance, to clean their rooms and respect their mother and me even when they don't feel like it. But let's not make the common mistake of proudly equating that with the righteousness that God requires. The truth is that God isn't concerned with just any kind of obedience. He's concerned with a certain kind of obedience. What motivates our obedience determines whether or not it's a sacrifice of praise. Doing the right thing with the wrong heart reveals deep unrighteousness, not devout righteousness. T.S. Eliot said it best. The last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. If any kind of obedience, regardless of what motivates it, is what God is after, he would have showcased the Pharisees and exhorted all of us to follow their lead, to imitate them. But he didn't. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside but dead on the inside. They had been successful in achieving behavioralistic righteousness and thought that's what mattered most to God. But Jesus said, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, Jesus shows that real righteousness is a matter of the heart. What's on the inside matters more than what's on the outside. That's what he meant in Matthew 5.20 when he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants to set us free by showing us our need for a righteousness that we can never attain on our own, an impossible righteousness that's always out of our reach. External righteousness is something we can all achieve on our own with a little self-discipline and a lot of self-righteousness. But Jesus wants us to see that regardless of how well we think we're doing or how righteous we think we're becoming, when you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect becomes a standard and not how much I've improved over the years, we realize that <clears throat> we're a lot worse than we fancy ourselves to be, that unrighteousness is inescapable, that even the best things that we do have something in them that needs to be pardoned. In Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 48, Jesus shows me that whatever I think my greatest vice is, my situation is actually much worse. If I think it's anger, Jesus shows me that it's actually murder. If I think it's lust, Jesus shows me, no, 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 it's actually adultery. If I think it's impatience, Jesus shows me that it's actually idolatry. Now, this painfully reveals my righteousness for the house of cards that it really is. It cuts to the heart and shows me my deep need for outside help for an alien righteousness. When our understanding of righteousness, quote, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees and goes beyond outer conduct, we will see the impossibility of achieving our own righteousness and the necessity of receiving Christ's righteousness. There is nothing that sinners hate more than to be told that there's nothing they can do, that everything has to be taken out of their hands, that no matter how hard they try, their best is never good enough. And yet... We'll never be free until we give up fighting for a righteousness that we claim as our own. In a sermon entitled, The Death of Self, Gearhart Forty shows that the work of Christ on our behalf finally kills 
any presumption that there's something acceptable that we can bring to God. Quote, At the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the crowd comes out against Jesus with swords and clubs, the disciples want to do something. They want to do their bit for God. They want to take up the sword and risk their lives, perhaps, and fight. One of them grasps a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the assailants, but Jesus will have none of it. Put up your sword, he says, for there's absolutely nothing you can do. In Luke's account, Jesus even stretches out his hand to undo what the disciple had done. He heals the wounded man. At that point, no doubt, everything within us cries out in protest along with the disciples. Is there nothing we can do? Could we not at least perhaps stage a protest march on God's behalf? Could we not seek perhaps an interview with Pilate? Could we not try to influence the power structures? Something, however small. Uh, But the unrelenting answer comes back, no. There is nothing you can do, absolutely nothing. If there were something to be done, my father would send legions of angels to fight, but there's nothing to be done. And when it finally came to the last and bitter moment, when these good, righteous men finally realized that there was nothing they could do, they forsook Jesus and they fled. Can you see it? Can you see that hidden in these very words, these very events, is that death itself which you fear so much coming to meet you? When they finally saw that there was nothing they can do, they forsook Jesus and they fled before this staggering truth. You, who presume to do business with God, can you see it? Can you see that this death of self is not, in the final analysis, something you can do? For the point is that God has once and for all reserved for himself the business of your salvation. There's nothing you can do now. But as the words of the old hymn have it, quote, Climb Calvary's mournful mountain and stand with your helpless arms at your side and tremble before that miracle of time, God's own sacrifice complete. It is finished. Hear him cry. Learn of Jesus Christ to die. In the cross, quote, God has stormed the last bastion of self, the last presumption that you really were going to do something for him. He has died in your place. He has done it. He made it. It's all over, finished between you and God. He died in your place, that death which you must die. He has done it in such a way as to save you. He has borne the whole thing. The fact that there is nothing left for you to do is the death of self and the birth of the new creature. As everything He became nothing so that you as nothing could have everything. You bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes Christ's righteousness necessary. The perfect righteousness of Christ has been freely credited to your bankrupt account forever, what theologians call imputation. The gospel is good news for those who have finally been crushed under the weight of trying to make righteousness happen. On their own. Oh man. <laughs> that is some good gospel right there. Man, that's ain't that the truth. Wow. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm I'm gonna do one more thing. I'm not gonna get to the uh, Tim Subtle piece from the Huffington Post today. I'll have to save it for tomorrow. 
Let's do our BioLogos update, and then we'll get to our lecture from Dr. Wilder-Smith. Oh, she loves the monkeys, Uncle, yeah, yeah. She loves the monkeys, Uncle, whoa, whoa. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. And the monkeys, Uncle, they form me. <laughs> well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkeys, Uncle. Rub all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine. I love the monkeys, Uncle, and the monkeys, Uncle, they for me. It for me. Dun, 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 dun. All right, that means that we're doing a Biologos update, as previously promised. All right, so Biologos has been in the process of making videos and putting them on their blog. And it's kind of odd, but so, you know, because sitting on the other end of the discussion, these are people who claim that uh, we Christians need to hand over, you know, hand over the creationist stuff, give them the book of Genesis and just trust their scientific data. They've even got theologians that they're showing on their videos to, uh, you know, <laughs> to make their case. And what's really interesting is, is that when you watch, sometimes you can call it propaganda, but when you watch um, videos or audio from a group of people who are basically challenging another group, the other church oftentimes is cast as the villain. Well, in this particular case, at the beginning of this vi of this video, those guys in in evangelicalism and in, in you know the visible church who have been attacking and challenging evolution, they're cast as the villain in this video. It's kind of interesting to watch. So uh, here's the uh, the name of the video is Distinctions. And this one is particularly known as Ancestry, but it's really interesting who the theologian is they decided to feature in this <clears throat> particular video. But uh, here we go. What does it mean to be human? For the Christian, the answer is complex. In part, it's a reflection of being created in the image of God with free will and common values. But does the science of human evolution pose a threat to that uniqueness? But in the last 150 years, science has failed to substantiate Darwin's claims of macroevolution. Now that's Lee Strobel. The Bible teaches that God created all creatures after their kind. There was not one common ancestor everything evolved from you know it's and that was mike riddle um this nation. here's ken ham so these guys are being cast as those backwards bumpkins who are uh, who are just not with the science who are hip with what science is up to and there's they're tenaciously hanging on to that silly book the book of genesis and interpreting it literally and so the question is uh, well if you believe in evolution are you somehow denying the uniqueness of humanity well, don't worry. The folks at Biologus have come up with an answer to this. We are going to find a way to affirm evolution, that the fact that we are all just basically the products of random chance, and blame it on the creator, um, and uh, and that somehow this really does, rather than attacking our uniqueness, this makes us even more unique. 
we continue. Whole generations of young people are being taught in the public schools there's no God, life evolved by natural process, and that very much determines their morality, how they view themselves, their purpose and meaning in life, and so on. Not all Christians view evolutionary science as a threat to their faith, and not all scientists see human evolution as a strictly materialistic process. There are those in both communities who believe the explanation is much more complex, including Dr. Rick Potts. Dr. Potts is one of the world's leading paleoanthropologists and the curator of Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History. What we found is that um, part of our message is that um, an aspect of, be of being human has been a process of becoming human that scientists have, uh, have been able to uncover. And that includes the uh, amazing, the amazingness, if you will, of the fact that human beings today are connected to all other living creatures. There's this vast uh, kinship that all... Yeah, see, we, we all come from the same um, amoeba that was uh, swimming around in the, um, in the primordial soup. All creatures uh, share on, on Earth, and that's, that's a, a beautiful thing. But the idea of common ancestry is anything but beautiful to many conservative Christians. It's a prospect that's caused consternation among American evangelicals, dating back at least to the Scopes trial in 1925. Others, however, insist there is nothing in common ancestry that should alarm those who have observed nature and who study the character of Creator God. When we talk about common ancestry, we don't mean that we're descended from the apes. We mean that... This is uh, Dennis Alexander. We last shared a common ancestor with the apes about six million years ago, um, plus or minus a little bit. Um, and so the apes have been evolving their own particular way since that time, and we've been evolving our way. But the fact we're all linked up in this evolutionary historical way, um, I think is just wonderful. Um, drama, it's a wonderful theatre, you know, um, and to me anyway, I find it a privilege um, that I should be connected up to all these wonderful creatures. On the one hand, I want to fully acknowledge that human beings are in a class by ourselves. Now, this is Greg Boyd. So here's their theologian, okay, Greg Boyd, the open theist, um, which, you know, again, I don't have time to explain all the ins and outs of open theism, but um, the god of open theism, let's just say that he's he's capable of being shocked. He's capable of being surprised. You know, if he, you know, in fact, you know, when God saw that, um, you, know, uh, you know, Amy Winehouse died, he was surprised by the news. He had no idea she was struggling with the things she was struggling with. And that she was dead. You know, he had to. He learned about it the same way you did. You know, probably watching the internet and the news. When Steve Jobs died, he did not know that Steve Jobs was going to die that day. So here we got. This is the <clears throat> pastor, the theologian, who's on the side of biologos. Okay, now so here he is. He's saying, "Oh, well, on the one hand, we've got to you know, we acknowledge something about the Bible. Watch how this happens. This is called double speak. I'm going to back this up just a little bit." And pay attention to the doublespeak here. Here we go. Creatures. On the one hand, I want to fully acknowledge that human beings are in a class by ourselves. Right on. So, uh, yeah, hum I just want to acknowledge that. Human beings are in a class by themselves. Okay. Uh, and you know, we are, I mean, the Imago Dei, uh, that, that, you know, we have uh, this. We are Imago Dei. That means we are the image of God. Now, notice that uh, Scripture says that we were created in the image of God. Now he says, oh, well, I just want to make sure, uh, we are Imago Dei. We are the image of God. 
that's an interesting way of putting it, don't you think? It's not that we were created in the image of God, as the scripture says. No, no, we are the image of God. Oh, okay. We're radically unique uh, in God's plan. Okay, so we're unique in his plan. Well, that dispels all of the fears that I had. Because we're to have dominion and we're to be the stewards of the planet and things of that sort. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down there, Tex. Um, yeah, here's the problem. Um, so he wants to affirm that we are Imago Dei, which is not what the scripture says. We are created in the image of God is what the scripture says. But we are unique in God's plan. And, you know, like we're supposed to have dominion of the earth and take care of things and stuff like that. Where is that information about us being given dominion over the earth? Oh, yeah. Book of Genesis. So here's the weird part. Notice, okay, he will take that part literally. Oh, yeah. Well, don't worry. Don't worry. I take that part literally. Yes, yes, yes. The part about us having dominion over the earth, that is to be understood literally. Yeah, right. But the other part about being, you know, created in six days, no, 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 no. That We weren't created. We evolved. But don't worry. Don't worry. We're still unique in God's plan. But, yeah, that, that all has to go. So what he's now knows what he's doing with the Bible. He's selectively picking pieces of it that, he will he will almost you know in in a negotiation where he's trying to build common ground you know oh don't worry i've got a lot of common ground with you lots and lots of it like i totally believe in the dominion you know, dominion over the earth thing right i'm with you there did god create us in the, the world and in, in the universe in 6 days no 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 yeah afraid not i'm not with you there but don't worry i believe in the dominion thing so i want to totally affirm that on the other hand if you totally separate humans from the rest of the animal kingdom, then you, you miss the beautiful continuity that is there. And I, part of the, the fear, I think, is for people thinking that we, we, we in any way came from apes, is that it undignifies us. Uh, yeah. Um, as a Christian, that's like the least of my fears. Um, yeah. If, we, if God didn't create us, and if Adam and Eve weren't really the first human beings on the planet then the whole gospel falls apart. And Jesus was a buffoon because he believed in Adam and Eve. You, you get what I'm saying here? So the undignified part, because supposedly my great-great-great-great-grandmammy was, you know, um, a, a, a species that was supposed to be in the zoo but was out free-ranging in the, you know, in the uh, on Kapiti Plain in, in Africa. Um, yeah, no, that, I'm, that's like the least of my worries. This undermines the very gospel itself. Well, I, I, it doesn't. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, the, if, if our dignity has to be at their expense, well, then we have all the dignity and they have none if we're in competition with them. This is a philosophical argument that's spinning out of Greg Boyd's head and isn't, isn't rooted in the Bible at all. And then we exploit them. There, we, we, there is a dignity to human beings that animals don't have. But on the other hand, there's a worth and a value there that we need to respect. Any honest dialogue about the origins of humanity must acknowledge that some scientists and some Christians will never find common ground on this issue. Right. In other words, one group is right and the other is wrong. But for those willing to engage in the conversation with prayerful hearts and open minds, the dialogue can lead us to glimpses of our Creator that inspire awe and worship. Uh -huh. So, yeah, does uh, evolutionary theory inspire awe and worship? 
in you. And it doesn't even remotely begin to do that with me. Why? Because, well, it's not based in what Scripture has revealed as what our origins are. That, call me silly, but I just think it's really, really foolish to have a different opinion of Scripture and human origins than the opinion that Jesus had. And since he was God in human flesh, I think he's got the credentials. He's got the street creds to tell us where we came from and what humanity's problem is and what the solution is. And, uh, well, those who are trying to reconcile Christianity with evolutionary theory are trying to mix two things that can't be mixed because they are competing truth claims as to where we came from. And, um, yeah, and over and again, the scientific, there's no really good scientific reason to believe evolutionary theory. And we'll be getting into another A.E. Wilder-Smith in just a couple of minutes, uh, you know, talking about, you know, is biogenesis scientific? But we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith... You can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time, but it's not a sermon. It's, a, it's really a scientific lecture. You know, I didn't warn you about this, but um, <laughs> this is a little bit on the super heady scientific side. Yeah, I should have warned y'all. That's okay. It's a great lecture nonetheless. I'll kind of give you a update here as well. I'll prep you, and then you can dive into it. Here, here we go. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service and sometimes lecture reviewing service. Okay, this isn't much of a review. This is a lecture on um, 
Biogenesis. The name of the lecture, by the way, is Is Biogenesis Scientific? This is a lecture presented by the late Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, and this was a lecture presented at Christ College, Irvine. I was in the audience when Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith presented this lecture. And if you listen carefully, he asks a lot of questions during the lecture. You might even hear me answering one of the questions, or at least attempting to. So I just want to let you know that. Anyway, so listen for it. Now, with that, you're going to need a little bit of groundwork because, like I said, this is scientifically heady. And here's how this works. Are you ready? Biogenesis, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, is this idea that one minute there wasn't life and the next minute, poof, there was life. Okay? What you need to know is that Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith is going to attack biogenesis scientifically with a formula and, 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 this basically asks the question, can chemical processes all by themselves create the DNA molecule? That's what you need to know while listening to this, so that's where we're going with it. Anyway, um, let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith and his lecture entitled, is biogenesis scientific? Here we go. Well, I'm going to speak this morning on this subject, that the naturalistic, purely chemical mechanism of spontaneous biogenesis are unscientific. And I'm going to show you that the creation uh, explanation of the origin of life is, strictly speaking, scientific and not religious. So I want to do the two things with you, but I'm going to assume you know something about uh, chemistry. Uh, you do, don't you? You're in a, a well-known, renowned uh, college here, so I suppose I can. <laughs> if you don't, put up the white flag, would you? If you're stuck on a particular term that I might use, and then I'll make sure you do understand it. Because there's nothing worse than talking to people who don't understand you. They get a blank look in their eyes, you know, which is uh, rather hard to combat. Uh, I'm going to read one word from the Holy Scriptures. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing, that creeps upon the face of the earth. So God created man in his own image. And the, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I'm going to show you on the screen, first of all, some of the laws which you need to know. The evolutionary 
theory for biogenesis, that is the origin of life, is this one, number one here, and it's M, which equals matter, plus T, which equals tempus, that is time, plus E equals energy. And that is supposed to give you abiogenesis, that is the origin of the cell, the origin of life. Now, that's the first part. You can't have any evolution until you've got life to evolve. And if you can't get life to evolve, there's no evolution. That's a bit of straight logic, isn't it? Now, once you've got the primitive cell out, here's your abiogenesis to give you your original cell. Once you've got that, then the evolutionary explanation of the evolving of the simple cell, as it's so-called, no cell is simple, but that's what they say, uh, the way the evolution goes forward is the same. Time, tempus, plus energy, plus mutation, plus natural selection gives you evolutive speciation. Okay? That's the evolutionary theory in a nutshell. I'm going to put it in the formula form so that you uh, can keep it in your minds. There's nothing worse than arguing with people who don't know what they've got in their mind. So you must know what you've got in your mind, and a formula is a very good way to put it there. Now, the creationary theory, which is so much rejected and uh, laughed at, laughed to scorn by the majority of scientists today, the leading scientists, the creationary theory, when you put it down in a formula, is not so silly after all. It says that matter plus time plus energy plus information. Now, you all know what information is, don't you? In the days of the computer age, I wouldn't like to have to explain that to you, but it means the writing down of thought processes in formula form capable of being used in computers. Information of that type. Now, there's a confusion here, which you must know about, otherwise you'll get confused in this time that it takes to say Jack Robinson. In information in the modern sense of the word in computer industry means nothing to do with thought, but only and everything is to do with a pure surprise effect. Nothing else than the surprise effect. That is, if you're going to start building a sequence of words, say you start with A, B, now if you're going to put another letter to it, it could be C. Now, the if you were to take, not A, B is your surprise effect, but you're going to take, say, A, Q as your two letters. Now, what is the letter that always follows Q in the English language? U. That's it. So, if you were to put in, uh, if you were to put in A, Q, 
Hugh, and then say you was the next one that came in, there's no surprise about that at all. Because that's the law of the English language, that you follow the Q with the U. But if it were A-Q-T, then you could say there's a surprise effect there, and you would get a plus information sign coming in if you put that in. Now just let me put that quite clearly, because I may have succeeded in clouding the issues up in your mind in doing it like that. If you were to take by chance out of a hat C-A, just two letters you say, and then you take out of the hat by chance the next letter, which is T, now that means cat, doesn't it? Now that would be quite a large surprise effect, because there's nothing to give you an idea that T should follow. Nothing at all. So it has nothing to do with thought. The ordinary informational theory that you learn in computer uh, technology, it has only to do with what you wouldn't expect, which uh, sometimes does apply to thought, doesn't it? When you get the answers of some people to certain things, they're certainly not what you expect. But um, that's the definition of information according to science today. And the definition according to real information theory is that information writes down informally the contents of thought. Now, if you have in your mind a machine, say you're going to build a car engine, okay? Now, you can put that all down in a blueprint, can't you? the thought that you have that you want to put into practice. Now, the, the creationists say that you've got to have information which is thoughtful to make life. The Darwinists say that time plus energy will do it. Now, the only difference between the evolutionary formula and the creation formula is the addition of thoughtful information. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what does that remind you of? Thoughtful information. What's another word for thoughtful information? What was that? Well, put it a bit quicker. Put it a bit uh, easier than that. It's logos. Logos is the Greek for it, isn't it? So if you were to put down here, but you mustn't put it in scientific circles is logos because they suspect you of theology and you're out then if you do that. If you put it down as information which is more exact, it'll be alright. So the only difference between the two formulae is that the creationist one says you've got to have thought behind it or information. Now are we okay? No difficulties about that? I don't think that that's so silly, you know. As they say it is, they laugh at all creationists because they believe in God. But if you tell them that they believe that God supplied the information, then they'll laugh on the other side of their face. Because obviously all research on the synthesis of life is research concerned with adding to matter time plus energy plus thought. That's what the scientist does. That's what Saul Spiegelman and Arthur Kornberg uh, did when they synthesized the first living virus. They didn't put 
the matter in a supercentrifuge and let energy, you know, by spinning it round, work on it and give it time then to, uh, to, to work and produce. If they'd set about producing their virus that way, they wouldn't have got the grant money. The simple difference, uh, Darwin, you see, who invented this evolutionary theory, he did not want to have the necessity of thought because he thought that would involve the necessity of God. And he was right, but he didn't know it. So when you've got your God, Jehovah, whatever you like to call him, to supply the informational thought and supply it in a form that can be absorbed by matter, they've got the preconditions for uh, getting life. And all scientists do that. If they set about their research work without thinking, I'd fire them, take away their tenure, and uh, they wouldn't do it again because they wouldn't get any results out to show for the money they've absorbed. Now, right, the three laws of thermodynamics are these, which you ought also to know. The first law, matter, M, can neither be created nor destroyed. Second law, the total energy of the cosmos remains constant, but the amount of energy available for useful work is always diminishing. You got that one? The amount of energy available for useful work is always diminishing. Put it like this, if you have up in the mountains a reservoir with, say, a million gallons of water in it, and you let those millions of gallons through a turbine, you'll get a million gallons out at the end, won't you? Plus a lot of energy from your turbines. So the amount of water remains constant, but the energy that's available gets reduced. Because when you're down in the lake at the bottom of the mountain, you can't use it again for a turbine to generate energy. So that's all that law says that the amount of energy in the cosmos remains constant, like the amount of water in the lake remains constant, whether it's up in the mountains or down in the valley. But you can't, when it's in the valley, you can't get the energy out of it. So that's what uh, the energy laws, the laws of thermodynamics talk about. Now, the next one is this. And this is very, very important because it's universally overlooked. The third law of thermodynamics states that there's absolute zero, at absolute zero temperature, minus 273 degrees centigrade, as absolute temperature, minus 273 degrees centigrade is approached, in a perfect crystal, the entropy of that crystal will also approach zero. That is, the disorder approaches zero, and you get the highest neg entropy you can get, as you cool the crystal down, you get nearer to higher entropy, and egg entropy in that crystal. Now, what they say in uh, most science is that if you keep a crystal warm enough, uh, a matter warm enough to combine, then its entropy will get reduced in forming DNA molecules and all that. That is, as you raise the temperature, uh, then you'll get more available energy. The opposite is the case. The fact is that as you cool it down, so you get more order. 
that's a very important thing to remember. Now, let's leave it at that. I want now to do an application of this. I need somebody to tie this to my mouth so that I can work with my hand, but I'll, I'll do my best. Now, if you have here your high, your high amount of negentropy, I'm sorry, it's a bit uh, squiffy, but that's because I can't hold it. Thank you. If you have here your high amount up there, and you're going down here, the water in the lake, here's your H2O in the, on the mountain. I'll just write mountain there. All matter tends to run down the gentle entropy slope to your lake at the bottom. You needn't think of that as a lake. You can just think of this as the order in the universe. Here you have high order, negentropy, and here you have low order in the lake. And there's a gentle slope of all matter towards disorder. That's called the entropy slope, because all matter gradually goes downhill to disorder. If you leave your house to students during the vacation, the entropy of your house will, unless they've been well brought up, increase until in the end you can't get in the kitchen door. Okay, now look, this is important what I'm going to say here. If you have here what you might call in golf a T hole. Okay? Now if your golf ball is working down, running downhill, and it comes to this T-hole, what happens to it? It'll fall into the T-hole and stay there, won't it? And it won't run down any further because it's in the T-hole. Okay? Now, that you can call in science an entropy Whole. And lots of substances behave as if they were in an entropy hole, in that they don't, they don't decompose. They don't get more and more disordered. In rolling down the hill, they fall into a T-hole, and you can't get them out, because uh, the T-hole, to get them out, you've got to supply directed energy, to which is called the activation energy, to get them out of the hole. Okay? So there is a case where your matter, like a golf ball, is running downhill, but it falls into an entropy hole, and then you can't get it out again. Now, this is quite important for, for reasoning. If you want to get it out again, you've got to apply an activation energy to it. That has to be directional. So I'll put an arrow there to show that it's directional energy to get it out. It can't be just any energy to get it out. You won't. You must have it directional to lift it up and get it out. Now, let's uh, consider what that means to, uh, for our uh, little talk about evolution and entropy this morning. 
get it down to the entropy hole and to get it out again, you've got to have an activation energy to do so. Now, look, in uh, life, in the DNA molecule, you have to have a certain type of molecule to uh, get the basis of life's information storage and retrieval system going. You know what the information storage retrieval system of life is called, don't you? The information storage and retrieval system in uh, life is called the DNA molecule. Now, do you, ladies and gentlemen, know how one stores information in the DNA molecule? Do you know how it's done? You know it is done by sequencing, don't you? If you uh, take a line, oh, thank you so much, that's kind of you. You take a line like this and you put sequences on them, You're storing information there, say the dot is C, A, T, like that, but in one dimension. The standard way of uh, storing information in computer industry is to do your sequencing according to a code in one line, that is in one plane, one letter after another. If you look at a sequence in the newspaper, you scan a line, you'll see that C, A, T means a feline, doesn't it? Okay? Now, if you were to want to store all the information necessary to make a man or a woman, uh, they're equal genetically, there's only one difference, that's the, that's the, the X and Y chromosomes, okay, nothing else, everything else is perfect, both in man and in woman, but you do have the, uh, the 46 chromosomes, if you were to do that in a single line like this, this is very important. You would need a DNA molecule several yards long. Now think of building a sperm or an ovum several yards long to get the information. You'd be in quite difficulties, wouldn't you? Now the, uh, the, uh, DNA molecule does something which is absolutely superb. It doesn't store like this in a line. It stores not in two dimensions, but in three. That is, it stores one after another, but also one above another, or one below another. So you've got three dimensions. Now, the logic of this is absolutely vital to understand the point I'm going to make to you this morning, if you hold out as long until I do get it finished with you. 
look, it's, uh, you know what we're made of, don't you? Now to the elite of Christ College, you know what that substance is, don't you? Shout it out to me. Pardon? It's an amino acid, but you know that's too general. What's its name? Its name is alanine. Alanine, okay. Let me see. Now we're made of uh, about 20 to 21 amino acids. And they're all like this, except that the CH3 is replaced by R to get your 21, 20 amino acids. Now listen, I said that in order to make the DNA molecule, you've got to be able to store the information in it in three dimensions, didn't I? Now I'm going to give you the method of getting out the three dimensions because this is the vital turning point on which the whole argument depends. Now if you write alanine, if you write alanine down like this, can you see that? This is a, a tetrahedron, you see, which is this carbon atom there, this carbon atom there, this carbon atom there, CH, CH, CH3, 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 COOH, COOH. Now, that's the same formula. There's the alanine I wrote down there, but I've written it a different way. The tetrahedron's written there, CH3, CH3, CH, CH, NH2, NH2, COH, 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 COH. What's the relationship of this one to that one? Yes, there. Did you say enantiomers? Would you say mirror images? The relationship of the one is the relationship of my right hand to my left. Okay? Now, do you think there's any difference in the chemical analysis of my right hand and the chemical analysis of my left hand? If I were to give you a slice of my thumb from my right hand and analyze it, would you get the same analysis out from the same slice of my left-handed thumb? You would. Now, this is vital. That is the entropy status of those two molecules the mirror images is identical. The entropy status of these two molecules is identical. That is, you can't distinguish between them chemically. You couldn't distinguish between my right hand and my left hand chemically because the analysis is just identical for the two. But what is different in the two? The arrangement in space, okay? The arrangement in space is different, different, uh, different between the two, CH3, NH2, COH, CH3, NH2, COH. The only difference is the arrangement in space. Now, the scientists say that means that you can't distinguish energetically, entropically, between those two molecules. You can't do it because there isn't any difference to work on. Now, can you tell me how then you can distinguish between those two molecules? This is vital. 
How could you distinguish between those two molecules? Pardon? Optically, you can do it optically. If you pass polarized light through one molecule in solution, thank you, and pass the same type of polarized light through the other solution containing that, you do that. In one case, the polarized light will be tipped to the left, and in the other case, it will be tipped to the right. So that you can do it optically. Now, how else could you do it? Well, you could do it by pattern recognition, couldn't you? By pattern recognition, you could do it. That is, your eye, coupled to your computer here, could do it. But you need a computer to do it. I mean, it's no good just to see it. You've got to interpret what you see, and that takes a computer to do. So to distinguish between these two molecules, and these two molecules are used to build the DNA molecule. Now, the DNA molecule and other ones optically actively used to build the DNA molecule, but that doesn't matter. The principle is the same. That means that in order to get these two to build the DNA molecule, to build in three dimensions, you see here you've got the three dimensions at work in a tetrahedron, not in a line, but in three dimensions. Now, if that's the case, then what we want to do, chemically speaking, in order to get the raw materials out for life to build the cell, is to separate the L form from the D form. That's the first principle you've got to do. Now listen, organic chemistry and straight work in the lab with ordinary organic chemistry, such as the molecules produced by Fox and Miller, you all know about Fox and Miller, don't you? Who doesn't know about Fox and Miller? Well, Fox and Miller, that's very good of you to tell me because I don't want to go and dive into a pond which is too shallow for me and I hit my head on the bottom, you see. I couldn't like to do that with you worthy people here because you wouldn't come with me if you are coming with me now. Uh, what chemistry can't do is produce the third dimensional specificity necessary to produce the DNA molecule. The DNA molecule is a spiral molecule which stores its information linearly, that is in a line in one dimension. One point after another, one sequence after another. In order to get that, you have to introduce a third dimension. And chemistry will always produce 50% of the D and 50% of the L, so that one neutralizes out the other, and your DNA molecule, by ordinary chemistry, would be a racemate which could only store its information in two dimensions not in three. That is, it could store them along here, you see, but he couldn't just store them back in the tetrahedron. Couldn't do it. Now, there's only one way to do it, ladies and gentlemen. Perhaps you'd give me that, would you? Thank you. Didn't want to stay there. Thank you. There's only one way to do it, I said I was going to talk about entropy this morning, and that's what I'm doing. 
There's only one way to do it. That is to introduce a means of making this molecule different from that so that chemistry can, under, can, can decide between them, can distinguish between them. Now, you can do that if you introduce, this is hard chemistry, but if you haven't done your homework beforehand, I can't do it in two minutes for you, but I'll do my very best that I can. Uh, it's a challenge for me to get this over to you, uh, because it's quite hard, but it's absolutely firm, this. So the problem is to make these molecules, the left-handed and the right-handed one, distinguishable to ordinary chemistry. If you can do that, then you can build a DNA molecule, left-handed and right, which could store information in three dimensions. Otherwise, you'd have to have a DNA molecule several yards long to store the information you need to make your nose or your eyes or your face or anything else that's human about you. Now, what was the name of that substance? That's alanine, that's right. Now, this is the L, and this is the D form, which in this way of writing it, you can't distinguish, you see. But I did it with a tetrahedron to show you can distinguish to them, uh, distinguish between them if you put them in the right dimensional form. Now, if you go to the deadly nightshade type of plant, the deadly nightshade produces a substance called, a base called brucine. Here it is, and I'll write it down, and it's L-brucine. And it produces that from the information on its DNA molecule. The problem is to make the L enantiomer different from the D so that chemistry can separate it. Okay? So you do it by combining your L alanine with your L brucine to produce the salt. And let's write the salt down in a form that we can all easily understand it. L, Al, L, brucine. Now, you've got the DL molecule there. So the other one we've got is D alanine plus D plus L brucine equals the salt. And that equals D. Al plus L brucine. Now, you've got these two. You see, these two are not identical. That is, their entropy status is different in each case. Now, the man who found that out was a brilliant man uh, who was considered to be uh, uh, so brilliant that he wasn't human. He was called Emil Abderhalden. Emil Abderhalden. And he did this work a hundred years ago. Uh, he was a little old man, you know, one of these real scientists who didn't know uh, anything that was going on round about him. Uh, he was so engrossed in his work that he, he worked on 
donkey's milk to get the enzymes out of donkey's milk. And he was a brilliant man. One day he went across to the hospital in Frankfurt where he worked. And you know, the assistants uh, sitting in the administrative office, they don't do anything about scientists or about the brilliance of science. They saw this little old man coming along and uh, it was a psychiatric clinic that he was working at. And when he came, they said, good morning, sir. Uh, and he said, I've come for my donkey's milk. And they said, yes, sir, we know all about that. And two strong men in white clothes took him behind bars, you see. They thought they'd got another one who'd escaped and put him in prison. And uh, he stayed there all day because nobody knew. He'd just evaporated from the lab and uh, nobody found him. But he was the man who did it. Uh, and you see, he was pretty, a pretty sharp thinker. He got hold of this brucine and he combined his DL acids with the uh, L-brucine to make L, L, and L, uh, and D, L. And the result is he could separate them. Now, the L salt of alanine with brucine is beautifully crystalline. It's just like snowflakes coming out of the solution. And uh, the D form, D L brucine, is a, a brown oil and stays in solution. So he separated them by that method. Brilliant. He separated that 98%. And the yield was 48%. So he separated out the basic materials you need to make the DNA molecule, store its information in three dimensions rather than in two. So he made life possible by discovering, are you listening, by discovering that if you employed the information on the deadly nightshade plant, which it has to produce the L-brucine, if you couple that to your chemistry, the information, then you can do that which chemistry alone can't do. That is, separate racemates and resolve them into their D and the L form. Now there you have the absolute way of doing things and showing that the formula put up by the creationists for making life consists of matter, plus time, plus energy, plus information. Only it's the information of a plant, which is programmed, which is required to do that. And he worked that out, and if we want to do anything quickly today, if we want to make life uh, by easy steps in synthesis today, all we go and do is pinch some of the information of a plant, which makes L-brucine, and... Uh, what do you say here, Bob's your uncle? That, that's the way it goes. It's, uh, it's as simple as that. But you've got to know how to do it. Now, the basis then for creationism in saying that information is necessary, thoughtful information such as you find on the genetic code, even of plants, it all speaks of information which is definitely conceptual information, that is information thought. The way to do it is to harness the programmed information of a plant and 
put it onto your chemistry, and then your chemistry is able to separate two isomers which have no difference in entropy status. Okay? You put in entropy status differences where it isn't naturally there. And you do it by borrowing the information of a plant to do it. If you do that, that's how these uh, people synthesized their virus in the first place. They stole, they borrowed the information on natural biology and applied it to their synthetical chemistry with the result that they could produce a, a virus which was living. But you can't do it without it. Chemistry cannot do it. Now, if you look through the world's literature, you'll find this, that everybody's trying to make chemistry alone by naturalistic means produce life. And you can't do it because chemistry can't separate optical isomers which have an identical entropy status. If you've got that one, you can see that the formula that I put up first of all is absolutely, uh, absolutely correct. But the information that we got out in that formula, the information here, where did it come from? I just want to see if you're awake. Where did it come from? It came from the genetic code of a plant. And if you can have the understanding to couple that genetic information to that formula, you have the possibility of making the DNA molecule which is capable of storing the information in three dimensions. And you can't do it without that. Because DNA, if you make it without that information here, is racemic, that is, it's D and L, and will only store the information in two dimensions rather than three. But if you get it in in the three dimensions, then you have life budding out of the, the test tube, and it's been done. The Nobel Prize was given to Arthur Kornberg because he successfully did that. He coupled the information uh, of a virus onto another virus which was dead and made it alive by that means. Read his work, it's a marvelous piece of chemical uh, manipulation. But if you went and told him afterwards, although he was an evolutionist himself, that he'd made the information by just guessing at it, he'd have clipped your ear for you because he knew that he didn't, he had to work hard to be able to stick in this information to get his good result out, which resulted in several hundred thousand dollars as a Nobel Prize, you see, for it. So uh, if you told him that it would just come out without him, if you gave him enough time to do it by chance, I don't think he'd have felt flattered at all. He didn't work very far from me in the University of Illinois when I was there in those days. So there you have it. What'd you think? Now, I know some of you are going, oh, man, that was really scientific. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, listen, if you want to learn more about this particular argument, the fact that uh, scientifically, it over and again, this is proven that matter plus time plus energy plus information is what brings about life and that uh, the, the DNA molecule is not, you can't just create it 
only using chemistry. You need information. You know, the, uh, the book to look for is a book entitled The Natural Sciences Know Nothing of Evolution. If you want to pick it up from the uh, Pirate Christian Radio bookstore, go to piratechristianradio.com. We have a link that says Pirate Store on it. Click on the section entitled Contra Evolution, and uh, down near the bottom of that segment, you should see uh, a link to the book, uh, The Natural Sciences Know Nothing About Evolution or Nothing of Evolution by Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith. By the way, did you hear me in the uh, audience there? I, I was there. I was at that lecture. I was at that specific lecture when he delivered it. And uh, if you listened, if you heard carefully, I did, well, you heard me answer one of his questions. So, all right, so what'd you think? Um, you know, I'd love to get your uh, feedback. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me, my friend, on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.